been telling you about this team that we're, uh, we were planning on sending to Honduras. And uh, at the end of this week, we kind of came to the point of, of trying to figure out what to do and made the decision not to send the team, partly out of uh, respect and concern for some folks on the ground in Honduras who were concerned about us bringing the virus, and then also just the ongoing concerns about airports and travel and, and people interacting in that place. So for the protection of them and for our team, we have decided to cancel that trip. That being said, it is still very much a desire of our heart to send a team there and, and to uh, see there's this very strong sense that there is a growing uh, partnership uh, between us and, and the community down there. And so we're excited at some point, hopefully in the near future, to send a team there so that we can get on the ground, see what's happening there, and, and join God and what he is doing in, in that place. Um, some really amazing things have been happening and are happening there, and we are looking forward to the time when we can get uh, when we can get down there. So I've been asking you to pray for the team. Now I'm asking you to pray just for, you know, the whole world, um, which is kind of dramatic, but not uh, untrue. Um, and then just for that situation, again, that, that we would be able to discern when the right time to go down there is and, and that there would be clarity about that as we, uh, as we move forward. All right, one other quick announcement. This one's, I think, a happier announcement. We are uh, in the season of Lent, and we're getting ready for Easter. You heard a little bit about uh, our Easter gathering coming up on April 12th. We'll have baptisms there. If you're interested in baptism, come uh, and talk to me. I would love to begin uh, that process with you. Uh, but in the journey to get there, we are spending time you know, in our groups and in a couple of different ways uh, preparing for Lent. We had a joint Ash Wednesday service with Christ the Redeemer, and uh, they have uh, someone in their community, uh, um, a woman named Lindsay. She's a spiritual director, and she's going to be leading a Lenten prayer uh, sort of mini retreat, two to three hour thing. Um, that's coming up on March 19th. This just got organized this week, so uh, I'm letting you know about it today. There are flyers about that out on the Connection Points table, so another reason to stop by there. On your way out, March 19th, that's a Thursday night. It'll be at our downtown center, uh, 132 E Street downtown. And I would love to have you guys come and be a part of that. Another way to sort of engage with the Lenten season and with uh, the practice of, of prayer, which, by the way, is one of our practices coming up here pretty soon. So if you have any questions about that, you can also... Uh, ask me about it as well. All right, uh, I know we just prayed, but I want to pause again. I, I want to pray uh, in this moment for uh, just a lot of things that are going on in our world and then for us as a community, and then we will dive into our conversation in 1 Samuel. So bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we do um, uh, come before you this morning. For those of us who have been reading the news, uh, there's this ongoing uh, concern, even fear at times around this uh, coronavirus outbreak and what it means, what it might mean for, uh, for each one of us. So God, first and foremost, we pray for health and safety, and God, that you would bring peace to our deeply troubled world. God, we pray for those who are a part of uh, the front lines against this virus, those who are in positions of authority who are making uh, decisions about what, what to be done in response to it, God, that you would give them strength and energy and wisdom as they face these things head on and make these big decisions. We pray for our community here that you would keep us safe and healthy, 
that we would exercise wisdom in, in the ways that we make decisions about uh, our day-to-day life. And, uh, and God, may this be something that we move through fairly quickly and, and on into the future with confidence that you are in control and that you know what's going on, even if it feels like things are out of control in the moment. We pray over that, God. We also ask now for our time together as we open your scriptures, your word, God. Would you speak to us? We bring into this place so many different things, these big global concerns, but also the concerns of our own lives, God. And there can be just this... Uh, chatter in our mind that can be hard to quiet when we come into a space like this. So would you help us to be fully present here in this moment that we may hear your voice. And God, would you speak to us? We are here. We are available. We are ready for you to speak to us. Would you speak clearly and then would you help us to respond today in whatever ways we need to respond? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus and everyone said, Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're also, by the way, in um, uh, play season, if you haven't noticed that already. Um, There's a, a murder scene out in the lobby. There's something going on on stage. We have half of a screen today, so we're just going to be flexible and roll with it. Um, And so if you need a a physical copy of the Bible, raise your hand, and someone will come around and make sure you have that. It's also, uh, you know, the Bible is on our app if you want to look that up. It'll be a little bit more difficult to follow along on the screen today, given that we only have about half of it. So Bear with us. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 4. As we get into it, I want to begin with this. This is at least happy news for me. It's March 8th today. We are 18 days away from uh, the opening day of Major League Baseball's next season. Okay, there's like five of us here that are deeply passionate about this, and we are all going to meet together in the lobby afterwards and share that passion. Now, 18 days away from baseball getting started officially, I'm a huge baseball fan. I've grown up loving the sport. It's my favorite sport to follow. Um, And one of the reasons why I love baseball is that it has always been full of characters. And I think there's something about the game itself. You don't have to be you know, tall or particularly uh, strong or whatever. Like, it, it just attracts all different kinds of people. One of the great characters of my life as a baseball fan is a guy named Turk Wendell, and you're going to see half of his body here on the screen. He, um, he pitched in like the late 90s, early 2000s, was sort of an average at best relief pitcher, but just a massive character, super weird guy. He, um, he would, uh, uh, lots of players have this superstition about not stepping on the foul lines, the foul lines are the white lines that go from home plate out past first and third base, if you're not familiar with a baseball field. A lot of players don't step on the foul lines. Turk Wendell would leap over the foul line. I don't know if you guys can see that, but he's like several feet flying over the foul line. That's how seriously he took that superstition. He also was a hunter, and he would take the teeth and the claws from the animals that he hunted, and he would put them on this ridiculous necklace. I don't know, if you, again, if you can see that. But he believed that this like, gave him animal powers that would help him pitch better and throw the ball faster. And then this is my favorite one. At one point, he, uh, uh, he was really into chewing tobacco and it was kind of part of his persona on the mound. Again, kind of a weird guy and that was sort of his thing was like try to intimidate uh, people with his weirdness. 
And, and so he'd have this huge wad of tobacco in his mouth, but then he became very concerned about getting cancer. So he stopped chewing tobacco, and instead he started chewing giant wads of black licorice. All right? Some of you are totally grossed out by this. I think it's fantastic. I love, I love black licorice. But here's the other part about this. So then he became deeply concerned about getting cavities. So in between innings, he would go into the dugout, he would spit out this giant wad of licorice, and then he would brush his teeth. Now, here's the funny part about it. So he, this is this thing that he was doing, and then after a while, he kind of dropped the licorice habit. But he started to pitch really well, and so he believed it had to do with the teeth brushing. So he would still brush his teeth in between innings, even after he was done with this, because he thought that it brought him good luck. Now, we may, well, we did just laugh about this, right? It's funny, some of the superstitions of baseball players, of athletes, of fans, I didn't even get into that, but that's a whole other topic. Like, if you uh, watch a postseason game of any sort with a hardcore fan, you're going to discover some of their funny little superstitions. We may laugh about this in the realm of sports, but the reality is we all have these little things, right? These little superstitions, these little rituals that we follow. Maybe we knock on wood or we avoid stepping on cracks in the sidewalk or we don't open umbrellas and doors, whatever those things might be. Again, we have these rituals, these rules, these superstitions that we follow religiously, right? Are you with me? Now, a lot of these things are left over from an earlier time in history. I've talked about this before, but just to remind us, Human beings used to see the world through what is called the transcendent frame, this truth that there is more to the world than what we can see, taste, smell, measure, the transcendent frame. People believed that the world was full of spirits and that human beings were porous. You could be invaded by these spirits, and so you would do these little rituals. You'd follow these rules, these superstitious behaviors in order to protect yourself from the spirits. Now, we live in a time that is dominated by the imminent frame, by, again, what we can see, taste, smell, touch, by what we can measure and quantify, and yet we still do these things. We still hold on to many of these superstitious behaviors. Why do we do this? I think it's because deep down, we know that we can't control our world. We, we know that it's out of control, and so we, we want to create some sort of assurance that we are in control. We want to feel like we're in control of our world, even though we know we are not. Now, I want you to hang on to that idea. We're going to come back to this idea of superstitious behaviors here in, in just a few moments. But first, on to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and some context for our conversation this morning. The chapter begins like this. Samuel's word came to all of Israel. Now, a little recap of where we're at in the story. God has just transferred the spiritual leadership of his people, the people of Israel, from a guy named Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, transferred leadership from them to this guy named Samuel. Eli and his sons are apathetic at best, corrupt at worst, and God has passed judgment on them. He's holding them accountable for their failure 
to lead, their failure to lead and to serve the people of Israel in this role as priests. Now, Samuel has taken over. You might expect the storyteller to then spend some time showing us how awesome Samuel is. The way that chapter 3 ends is on this very high note of, of, of Samuel taking on leadership. You might think that we'd get you know, more of his exploits and, and some of the wonderful things that he did, but that's not what happens. The narrator hits pause on Samuel's story for a few chapters uh, in order to talk about this thing called the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to talk more about that here this morning. But again, back to context for just a minute. We're, uh, this year in particular, spending a lot of time talking and thinking about this process that we're calling imagination formation. What does it look like for our whole lives, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength to be formed by God's story? Part of that formation is through our engagement with spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines as they're sometimes called. This year we're introducing eight of those. By the way, next Sunday is uh, our third practice Sunday, so you're going to want to be here to be a part of that conversation. Introducing eight of these practices and then we're, we're really digging into that in our groups. What does it look like to actually do these things and how does it impact our, uh, our day-to-day lives in that group conversation? Our time in 1 Samuel, though, is still very much a part of this imagination formation. We're moving through the book through the eyes of four characters, Hannah and then Samuel and then Saul and David. We've already spent a couple weeks with Hannah. We're now into Saul's, or not Saul, Samuel's story. And these are characters who are helping us, uh, giving us a model for what it looks like to have our imaginations formed by God's story, characters who also help us see and understand how God brings about renewal. And this is a pattern that we've been looking at for the last several weeks, right? From a period of decline, from a moment where it looks like everything is falling apart, the world is chaotic, the institutions and structures no longer serve their purpose, from this period of decline emerges a remnant, And that remnant could be an individual, it could be a small group of people, but some person or group of people who say, you know what, this decline is not the way the story ends. There's more going on here. There's more that could happen. God can still move. And so this remnant experiences this holy discontent, this sense that there is something else that God is up to, and that leads them to contend. And we've defined contending as the the marriage, the partnership of prayer and action. We pray, we go before God, and we beg for him to move, to do something. And yet at the same time, we don't just pray, we do things, right? We respond, we partner with him in this process. And from that, God brings renewal. Now, even though the narrator moves the focus away from Samuel, Samuel still very much needs to be in our minds as we move into these next couple of chapters. These arc stories are not random. They are there to help us see what exactly Samuel is stepping into. We've seen the state of the corrupt leadership of Israel. Now we're going to get a sense of where all the other people are at, where the nation itself is. Is at. So if you have your Bible, we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 4, and I'm going to read part of the first scene here for us. 
Chapter 4, beginning in the second part there of verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. And we'll talk about who the Philistines are here in just a second. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Shiloh is the center of worship and religious life for Israel at this point in their story. Let's bring the ark from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And that little weird phrase is just a description of some of the artwork that was on the Ark. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh, no. Nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take note that it's the Philistines... It's the enemies of Israel who actually remember the story of God's salvation, the story of the exodus from slavery in Egypt. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. There is an uplifting Bible story for you. <laughs> All right, so there's a couple of things that we need to see from this scene. We're going to work our way backwards through this. First thing is this. God's prophetic word that came through Samuel about Eli's sons comes true here. Hophni and Phinehas, who have used the priesthood to abuse people, to exploit women, to profit themselves, are held to account, they die. Just like God said would happen. And they die at the hands of their enemies, this group of people called the Philistines. And let's talk about them for a moment because we're going to see them often in the book of 1 Samuel. The Philistines were actually not indigenous to Canaan. They were seafaring people that likely came from the Aegean region. And there's probably going to be, oh good, we can see most of the map uh, of where they settled. This land ended up being quite contested between Israel and the Philistines. They got there around 1190 BC and they set up five major cities. And you may be able to see them on the map. Uh, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. These were their uh, operation headquarters, their, their sort of home base. And again, territory that became very contested between them and Israel. By the time we, we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, they, they've been enemies for about 200 years. This fighting had been going on for a long time. And they would continue to be an irritant for Israel for another 300 years after this. Along with 
Egypt and Babylon, the Philistines make up like the big three, like the big three bad guys of the Old Testament. The Philistines were uh, a menace because they had a monopoly on iron, which allowed them to make two things, weapons and beer jugs. So in, in archaeological digs of their territories, that's what, that's what people find is weapons and beer jugs. Classic bad guys fought hard and drank hard. So this is who uh, Israel is up against during this period in the story. And then kind of the third thing that we see here in this opening scene is this thing called the Ark. The Ark that we all know and love for its ability to melt the faces off of Nazis, right? This is a, this is a reference to Indiana Jones. That, by the way, is actually a fairly good representation of what uh, most people think the Ark actually looked like. Now, what is this thing? What is this box that they are so fired up about? The ark was an artifact that God had commanded Moses to build all the way back in Exodus chapter 25. So again, the way this story unfolds, God comes to a guy named Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation and your family is going to bless all the families of the earth. This happens. They grow in number. They end up in Egypt. This is a good thing at first. But ultimately, it turns into slavery. And they spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And then God rescues them, brings them out, saves them from slavery in Egypt. Now, once they get out of Egypt, they end up in the desert for a while. And it's in the desert that they begin to have lots of conversations with God. God begins to speak to them through Moses uh, in a number of different ways. And a lot of this is about, hey, you've been in slavery for 400 years. We haven't been in communication, in relationship for a while. And so we need to rebuild this thing. It's almost like a a DTR, defining the relationship between God and the people of Israel. And one of the things that God asked them to do is to build some stuff. One of the things that he asked them to build is this big tent called the tabernacle, which was supposed to serve as like their church, the place that they would all get together and meet for worship. And then within the tabernacle were a number of different things that were, uh, again, meant to remind them of, of their story. The ark was one of these things. It was a box that held a couple of important storytelling elements. One of those was the actual Ten Commandments, the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written. There was also some manna in there. Manna was this uh, like magical bread that would appear every morning for them as they were walking through the desert. And then they also put in there Aaron's staff. And if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, you know that God uses Aaron's staff in a number of different ways to demonstrate his power and to lead them uh, to freedom. So within the ark are these reminders of God's commands, his provision, and his salvation. Very important visual storytelling elements to remind them of what God has done on their behalf, guiding them, leading them, providing for them, caring for them, protecting them. As we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, this ark had become far more than a symbol. We see this battle breakout between the Philistines and Israel. We see 
Israel initially defeated. And so they go and they get the ark from Shiloh thinking, this is why we lost. We'll, we'll go, we'll get the ark, and it will give us the, the edge, the advantage that, uh, that we need to help us win. I, I, I talked about baseball a little bit earlier, but there's been this whole, again, the five of you who like baseball in this room will know what I'm talking about. But there's been this whole scandal this offseason with cheating. And, and the Houston Astros in particular doing all these things, uh, banging on trash cans and, and spying on other teams with cameras to steal signs so that the batters actually know, you know, the pitch that's coming. People are always looking for an advantage. And for Israel, this is what the ark represented, like, oh, we just need to get this thing here with us, and then all of a sudden we will have what we need to defeat the Philistines. They bring it into camp, everyone gets all like hyped up, you imagine they're like chest bumping each other, like, yeah, we got the ark, like, we're going to do this, we're going to take the Philistines down. And you can imagine them running out in the battle, all pumped and confident, and then they get routed, like really badly. 30,000 foot soldiers lost. And you, you have to imagine that this raised a question for them. Like, we had the ark. We brought the ark with us. Why didn't we win? Like, what happened? Now, this brings us to the next part of the story. The rest of chapter 4 uh, brings us into a couple of interesting things. As this route is going on, a soldier, probably one of the smarter guys, bails. He's like, I'm out of here, and he runs home. And on his way uh, home, he passes through Shiloh, where he bumps into Eli. Again, Eli, the, the guy who had been the leader of Israel for the last 40 years, is sitting there trying to get wind of the action because his heart feared for the ark of God. Now, that's a very interesting statement if you think about it. His heart feared for the ark, not for the people, not, not for the soldiers. It feared for this box. The man and, and Eli have this conversation, and this is where Eli gets the bad news. The Philistines have won the battle. Your sons are dead. And the ark has been captured. When he heard about the ark, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. This is kind of the, the, the final blow in many ways. God passing judgment on Israel and its corrupt leadership. Hophni and Phinehas dead, now Eli is dead. Power has been transferred to Samuel. So there's this judgment piece, but then also on the ground is this question. You have to imagine that all these people are asking the question, okay, well, what now? Eli and his family have been wiped out. The army has been routed. The ark has been stolen. Our enemies are prevailing against us. It's, it's over, right? Like the whole thing has fallen apart. The storyteller then takes us to Phineas's wife, who represents, I think, the nation's spiritual and emotional temperature. We discover that she's pregnant and that these traumatic events, the news of the battle, her husband dying, causes her to go into labor, a labor that ultimately takes her life. But before she goes, she's able to name 
the son that she gives birth to. She names him Ichabod, meaning no glory. For as she says, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now, she's, she's sort of right and wrong in her statement here. Obviously correct in saying that the ark is gone. It has definitively been stolen. But then she's only correct in saying that the glory has departed if glory means favor and success. Now, as the wife of one of the most prominent and powerful people in Israel, it was probably fairly easy to assume, hey, God's on my side. Because look at me, I have this position of privilege and power. And now that I've lost that, now that that is gone, God has clearly left. But God's glory is not tied to whoever is in power. God's glory is not tied to this particular family. God's glory is not confined to a box. God's glory simply is. Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The glory of God is not departed from Israel. This is the false assumption that God's favor equals his presence. The false assumption that God's favor equals his presence. Things are going well, therefore God must be here. And then the flip of that, things are going poorly, that must mean that God is not here. This is superstitious thinking. This is confining God to a box. And again, we may scoff at the idea of superstition, but we're still so prone to this. And again, to assuming things are going well, God must be here. Some questions I think we need to ask at this point in the story is, what do we do? What do we do when we see widespread institutional failure? When we see leadership that is corrupt? When our paradigms no longer are working for us, where do we go? Who do we turn to? Now with that in mind, let's look at at the beginning of chapter 5. This is actually, in my opinion, one of the funniest stories in all of Scripture. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Dagon is the Philistines' primary deity, the god that they worshipped. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face right on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face again. This time his head and arms had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. And then this little like editorial comment. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. All right? More superstitious thinking. And then this part is not quite as funny. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath, 
So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. And for the next several verses, this is what happens. It's like hot potato with the ark. Like it shows up in a town, bad things start happening. They move on, give it to someone else, and the pattern repeats. The Israelites have their magical box, and the Philistines have Dagon. Both groups of people are dealing with the spiritual realm, but only in the abstract. Now, that may sound like an odd thing to say because these are physical things, right? A box and a statue. How is this an abstraction? It's very easy to replace God with something else. With an object, with a thing, with a box or a statue. It's easy to replace God with a desire, sex, power, money. It's easy to replace God with just about anything. Anything that we give power over our lives. Whatever form our idols take, they all have the same thing in common. They keep us from dealing with the personal God. They keep God at an arm's length. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. That's actually one of the saddest verses to me in all of Scripture. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Idols keep God at a relational distance. Idols objectify God. Eugene Peterson says it this way, an idol is a God with all the God taken out. God depersonalized, God derelationalized, a God we can use and enlist without ever having to receive or give love. The idol is a form of divinity that requires no personal relationship. It's easy, it's straightforward, it's not as messy as having to deal with and interact with an actual being, an actual person. Now the story of scripture is the story of the God who wants to be with us, who moves towards us because he wants to relate to us. He wants to be personal with us. He wants to give and receive love with us. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. The story is about God coming near to us because he wants to be with us. He wants to relate to us. Now, in that last verse, the the phrase, the living God, is a phrase I want us to have in the front of our minds here for the next few minutes as as we come in for a close here. This phrase, the living God, repeated about 80 times throughout Scripture. It's this reminder woven all through the story that God is not a rock or an idea or a genie in a bottle. This is the living God. When we open these Scriptures, we are dealing with the living God who is active and alive and working, a God who wants to have a relationship with us. 
Now, this God's glory is revealed in many different ways. It, the living God's glory revealed in creation, revealed in people made in his image, but the living God's glory is most clearly revealed in the person of Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. That word, by the way, is the same word uh, in Greek for tabernacle. Tabernacled with us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what's most startling and perhaps even disturbing about Jesus, about him being the full display of God's glory, is that that glory is not revealed to us in power, in a magic show, in fireworks. It is revealed to us in his humility, in his service, in his sacrifice. But this is great news for us. The good news of Jesus is that we don't have to turn to superstition. We don't have to knock on wood or, or, or manipulate the divine in any way to gain favor. Our God, the living God, through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has declared his favor. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it all away. Nailed it to the cross. God has taken the initiative. The living God has taken the initiative to be in relationship with us. This is fantastic news. Now, to come in for a landing here, returning to that pattern of renewal for just a moment, decline, remnants, holy discontents, contending, renewal. One of the things that contributes to decline is the replacement of relationship with the living God. Again, with the living God who has gone to these great lengths, sending his son Jesus to reveal his glory, to die in our place, rejecting that, replacing that with idols and superstitions. So then, part of the way out of decline is naming those idols. Part of the way to renewal is repenting of the ways that we've avoided dealing with the personal living God. Getting to this place where we are no longer content with abstractions, with superstitions, with God replacements, where we want the real thing. This is part of what we mean by holy discontent. We don't want fake stuff. We want a relationship with the living God. And so we identify our idols, not because we know we feel terrible about ourselves or whatever. We identify these. We turn from them. That's what the word repent means in order to face, to turn towards the living God who wants to be in relationship with us. So a couple of things for us to think about here. One is this. We may have a Dagon in our lives. By the way, Dagon is a merman. I don't know why, but I love that for some reason. Here's a picture of him. You can kind of see it. Dagon, I think, represents these very obvious things that can take the place of a relationship with the living God. 
These obvious things that become the controlling factor of our lives. It might be our kids' schedules, their activities. It might be work and and our desire to move up the ladder and please our boss. It might be school. It might be our stuff that we're holding on to. Whatever it is, these very obvious things, these tangible things that that we put in the place of a relationship with the living God. And so we need, again, I just love that image of Dagon just whoop, falling right on his face. We need to knock that thing over, right? Put, push it down so that its, it, its arms and tail fall off. <laughs> do you have a Dagon in your life? Or do you have an ark? This one is trickier. It's far more subtle because it looks so good. Right? This, this thing that's a reminder of some way that God has worked in your life, but it's become a superstitious replacement for an authentic relationship with the living God. It's so easy to slip into this thinking, right? We think, oh man, I read my Bible this morning, therefore my day is going to go great. I, I prayed last night, so today my kids are going to listen to me. I served at church on Sunday morning, and so I'm going to have a blessed week. Quite frankly, and again, confessionally, this is, this is the one that I struggle with. I have some arcs. As we've been working through this month, the practice of fasting, I, I was processing this with my group this week, but I, I've come to the realization that I've been engaging with the practice of fasting, expecting something amazing to happen. I don't know exactly what it was. Like, I don't know if I thought, oh, man, my sermons are going to get better or, you know, our church is going to double in size or my life is going to get way easier. Like, I just expected, like, oh, something amazing is going to happen because I fasted, right? I I did my spiritual duty, therefore I should get a treat. (laughs) So far, though, nothing amazing has happened. In fact, like, our whole family has gotten sick and we had to cancel this trip to Honduras and it just... Like, things have not necessarily gotten better. (laughs) This practice is messing with my pragmatism. With with these areas of my life where I still need transformation, uh, the transformation that comes from experiencing God's grace, I still expect it to work formulaically. I did this, I put in this input, I should get this output. God does not work like this. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. The living God is a being, a person, not a spiritual rewards system. And so fasting or whatever it is that's become your ark is not about manipulating God into doing something amazing for you. It's about drawing closer to him. It's about being in right relationship with him. So what about you? Do you have a Dagon or do you have an ark? In what way have you been avoiding? Have you been kind of keeping the living God at an arm's length? As we contend for renewal as a community and individually, we have to name and turn away 
from our boxes and our statues, our idols and our superstitions, so that we can turn towards the living God. Let's pray. And so, Father, we we do begin right now in this moment confessing, naming, and, and even beginning to repent, to turn from our superstitions and our idols, our dagons and our arcs. Whatever it is that we put in your place, whatever it is that we use to keep you at a distance so that we don't have to deal with the sometimes messy reality of an actual relationship with the living God. We want to name those things now this morning, God. We want to leave them here in this place, in this moment, at this table that we are about to encounter. We want to leave them here so that we can experience an authentic relationship. God, we do not want any more fake stuff. We want the real deal. An actual relationship with the living God who has sent his son Jesus to remove the barriers so that we can know you, we can experience your love, and we can have life now full, abundant life now and into eternity. So God, we leave those things behind. We turn from them so that we can turn towards you. And as we do that, God, would you meet us? Would you embrace us with open arms? As you come around us and remind us how much you love us. And may even the, the next few moments that we share as we take communion, as we, uh, as we pray together, as we sing together, God, would you meet us here in our freedom from these other things, God, would you reveal yourself to us in some new and fresh way even now today? And Father, even if we don't feel that this morning, even if it still seems like, feels like there's distance between us, would you begin would you begin to draw near to us and make that, make that real to us today, God? For whoever is here this morning that needs to know that you are real and that you are active, would you make yourself known to them today, even now in this moment? We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.